ain't nothing about just his luck. Boy, this ambition. Nothing gets in our way. We on a clear mission. We making plans. We just trying to lift society. Working so hard that we growing notoriety. And we born to drive. Yeah, it's inside of me. Eric, Mark, and James. We giving game. They inspiring. Adam clear with the vision. It's so deployable. You do what you want when you live in life. Unemployable. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Unemployable, the podcast live streaming from beautiful gold coast how are the boys today what's going on mark what's happening doing good doing good doing good ready for round two yeah got some good things to talk about today uh, one of my favorite favorite ja- dudes yeah yeah absolutely james what about you how you doing yeah, mate, buddy pumped yeah ready for it um you know up early did the walk did the fitness got it all in clear mind ready to rock and roll love it love it eric what about you you ready to rock and roll feeling good feeling fresh yeah I well, think you should do that top button up, though, James, please. <laughs> really? Thanks, mate. He's advertising, mate. He's advertising. <laughs> we got a good. <laughs> we got a good schedule. We got a good schedule. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we thought we'd kick off with a bit of a book review today for our audience. Uh, a lot of people have probably seen this book out there in the market. It's written by none other than Walter Isaacson. So, for those of you who don't know, Walter Isaacson basically is the guy that if you become uber famous he's the guy that's probably going to write your biography he did uh steve jobs's biography and a bunch of others this is the book right here on the desk as you can see it it's like two inches thick um what do you guys make of it what what was your feedback on the book what did you think did it change your perspective on elon um mark what what were your thoughts you've been through it oh um yeah i I think the book the book was amazing um i don't i don't think it changed my perspective on elon i think I think he he was quite clear on how intense he is, um, but it was good to really get a behind-the-scenes look at that. Um, the beautiful thing about the way Walter writes his books is you actually feel like you're there in the story. Mm. Um, so to get that front-row seat, I thought it was just it was sensational. But because he was there with with Elon for several years, right? It was I like, think he spent a lot of time with I him. Think it was three text or four messages back and years. forth, and yep. And he interviewed a lot of Elon's circle, right? Family, friends, workers. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, d- definitely, definitely um, gives you a huge insight into the man and the people around the man. Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. What was your biggest, best story, James? Like, what did you, what did you like most in the book, or was most eye-opening to you? Yeah, that um, you know, you've got a, the contrast between a lot of other top, uh, top entrepreneurs around, but he's, um, you know fairly scrappy um and in the sense of that by all by any means necessary in the shortest period of time like for the for, you know welding together the uh, heat exchanges and uh, wiping down sensors with the uh, and drying them off with a hairdryer to launch a rocket into space like just at, at no at no expense and uh it was on time with or without fail so just seeing that the scrappiness of how it all come together was it was um, pretty cool mm. just like the most entrepreneurial things when you're starting something it's um never what you uh what the uh, you know what it could be seen to be it shows you no matter what level you're at like you're solving problems all day every day it's just he's solving much bigger problems right yeah at speed and uh, and multiple of them at scale too. yeah 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 um and uh, it certainly gives you a, a good reflection when you're solving a problem of your own. You're like, I'm yeah. not putting a rocket on the moon, like get over it and get on with it. Yeah, at, yeah. At speed. I certainly found that myself. Like, you know, I, I've got a couple of, um, you know, minor, very minor <laughs> engineering challenges in one of my businesses, a product that we need to develop. And I'm like, if this dude's putting rockets into space, surely I can tackle that little thing that I've been putting off for a while. Yeah. What did you think of the book, Eric? Like you're I'm halfway about, through it? Yeah, I'm halfway through it at the moment. Um, and it, to be honest, it's, 
very easy read for me. And um, I think his upbringing, to be honest, and how hard his father was on him. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting, obviously. Um, a guy with his intelligence and just being the outsider, you know, not having many friends, just being the guy that, you know, moved around a fair bit. And, yeah, I just couldn't believe how hard his dad was on him, you know. You'd think he'd, he'd support him a lot more. Yeah. And uh, love that he, he went to Queen's University, which isn't far from where, uh, where I was born. Yeah, because so he immigrated from Africa, South Africa, to Canada originally. Yeah, he did. So it was interesting that he went to Queen's. Um, so, but yeah, again, <clears throat> being raised in such a supportive family for me, that's very foreign to me. Yeah. You know, uh, my, my parents were always my two biggest fans and his was a little opposite. And I think that's goes to show you the resilience that he's built in himself, you mm -hmm. know, and taking the risks that he's, that he's had uh, to take. So it's still, it's still amazing how much um, for this, you know, potentially the smartest guy on the planet, how much it still affects him and plays him even to this day. Yeah. Like, you know, go, you can do all the, you know, a lot of personal development work and go back and patch up the hole, so to speak. But um, for a guy that can potentially design anything, redesign himself, it's been a bit of a struggle from a personal perspective. Uh, you, you get the impression that that's part of what makes Elon, Elon. Like, and I think the, the author, Walter, does an amazing job of really exploring that. Like, if, if Elon was able to put the pieces of his personal life together would he still be elon yes um i love the way you know when everything is going great and he's on top of the world he elon will go into one of his businesses and create a surge mm. yeah right he'll create the drama he'll create the urgency and that's in built that's innate so yeah i i do wonder if he was able to have peace whether elon would still be elon um, I, I, I just don't think... I don't think you could change the recipe and have the same outcome I at all. I don't think so. And I think for those listening who don't know what, what you were talking about, Mark, that idea of a surge is actually really powerful, right? Like, so when he went down to the Rockets factory, they weren't scheduled to launch anything for months. And he got down there, it was Saturday night at six o'clock or something in the afternoon. And there was only a few guys working. And Elon just, just his head started to explode going, we're trying to make the human race interplanetary here. And I've got three of my employees here just because it's a Saturday afternoon at six o'clock. Why haven't I got all of my staff here working around the clock? Because this is the most important mission. And in the pod today, we're going to explore some of the stuff Elon's doing at the moment with, with X slash Twitter and, and the DealBook Summit. And I think there's real correlation between the level of vision that the guy has, like trying to put humans on another planet and he's deadly serious about it and like taking over Twitter X, you can see um, how I, that's a massive play and we'll, we'll link into that. But that idea of creating an artificial surge, I think serves us entrepreneurs really well, especially us entrepreneurs that live in Australia where it takes a lot of talent to dive, a st dive starvation here. Like you've got to be very mm -hmm. disciplined and organized to kill yourself that way, right? Because yeah. <laughs> we're so comfortable and we're, you know, even if it doesn't work out, we're okay. And I think Elon is just this incredible example of somebody who creates the necessary stress and pressure to create the diamonds. And so he called all of his staff in and said, we need to have this thing ready to launch by Friday next week. And like, it's just this insane deadline that is completely imagined, but it kind of, you know, it breaks a lot of people, but it also attracts. And there's those stories in there are those A players that left the company and said, I can't deal with this anymore. And then came back because they realized that they were dead outside of their company. They just couldn't live without the, 
the the real mission and vision that Elon brings to things. And yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't do that. He he definitely he definitely has a way of galvanizing his teams and and bringing them on board uh, on the mission with him. But he leads from the front as well. Yeah, totally. And he sleeps in his office or he sleeps under his desk, right? And it was interesting to to hear Walter kind of quiz him on that. You know, Elon, do you, do you really need to sleep on the floor? And he says, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But uh, the troops like to see the general on the front lines. And so he, he really, he, I think he, he really loves that, um, that battle and that fight. And, you know, how can you not rally around a guy like that that's trying to do those amazing things when, when he's on the front line leading with you? A couple of the photos that were so compelling to me in the book was when he was at 2 a.m. in the morning on the production line at the factory of Tesla when they were trying to hit the 5,000 vehicles a week and everybody said he couldn't do it. His own staff didn't believe him and were leaking stuff to the press. The short sellers moved in around the stock going, Elon's on another planet, he's never going to make 5,000. And even the board didn't think he'd do it, so they gave him billions of dollars of options if he did it, and the guy did it. And he was you know, overseas when the text came in with the black Tesla Model 3 coming up the line. I mean, how was that story of what they had to do to get there? That's actually one of my favorite stories in the yeah. book. So he, he, basically, he basically goes to his team and he says, there was an old World War II story. I can't remember which country it was, but basically they built a tent, a big outdoor tent and created all their, um, all their machinery, all their planes in this tent. To, and he, he basically didn't have enough more capacity. There was no more capacity left to do any more cars. And they're like, we're not gonna hit this deadline. And he's like, think outside the box guys. And someone came up with the idea to build a tent. Um, and they, he basically knew that he was gonna get a fine for doing it, but there's a loophole in the law, uh, something to do with the car manufacturing industry that you could, you could run some sort of production line under a big tent. So he built like the world's biggest outdoor tent and basically started manufacturing cars in that tent and yeah. caught all the short sellers on surprise because they, they didn't realize it. Speaking of short sellers, um, the interesting article, uh, part of that book about uh, Bill Gates and he's trying to tap him on the door to, to start investing, you know, uh, the philanthropic fund. Uh, and he's just like, uh, are you still short? And he said, well, yeah. Well, he, he couldn't understand why he was trying to short one of the, uh, the biggest movements to um, you know, green sustainable energy, uh, yet ask him to donate to green sustainable energy. Yeah. He goes, no thanks, my money's, my investment's probably safer and have more impact here with Tesla than it is with you and all your clients. Bill, Bill was shorting Tesla. He totally was, half a billion dollars worth of shorts. And he said, how can I give you money when you're A short, the biggest environmental movement? You just want to make money, I'm trying to make change. Yeah. So, Fuck off. But yeah, what, yeah. Did you, what did you think about that? Like the, the Bill Gates basically asking him to make those big donations while being short a billion and a half of his stock. I thought exactly what Elon did. It's like, I don't get it. Like, like is he crazy? Like, yeah, Elon for a smart guy, Elon, for Bill Gates is a smart guy, but it seems like there's no social. I, I think Bill Gates might have a touch of, you know, like psychotic, you know, uh, in, in, in like unable in to have that empathy with humans to understand you're standing in front of a guy asking him for something while you're shorting his company. I mean, it, it was pretty crazy. Makes no sense. But that, but that story about the, the, uh, the second production line they built in the car park, they did use an exemption in California law, a loophole that hadn't been used since World War II, but it was really to, to actually construct uh, automobiles outside of the factory, and they did it so they could build the war planes when the war was on, and, um, and then they, they, they gravity-fed uh, the bodies down a, uh, unused train lines or something yeah. while they were finishing it. 
just an incredible i love the story also where elon would literally go down every robot inside of the factory and he would stand and watch the robot and when he first built those because mm-hmm. um, the book's a lot about the machine that builds the machines and how elon was one of the first at scale to really realize it wasn't just about building the cars it was about building the factory or the automation that builds the cars and, uh, and when he went down the production line and he realized that some of these tasks, he watched the robot struggling with one particular task and he asked the operator, stop the machine, let me go in and try and do the task. And he did it in a split second compared to the machine. So he said, right, that machine's got to be in the car park by sundown. And he started replacing machines with humans. And that one story about where he was watching the screws go in uh, to, to you know, install one of the pieces. And he goes, why is that thing so slow? Like, why is it doing three turns backwards and then it's slowly winding the screw in? And nobody could give him an answer. And he said, who can get into that box that controls the machine? And he said, I'm not moving until somebody can open the box. And they opened the box. They, they hacked the software that was controlling the robot and said, oh, well, when it was delivered from the factory, it was programmed to be only working at 30% capacity and for some weird reason to do three turns backwards before it does any forward turns. And so he had his uh, coders reprogram the robot, sped it up uh, and saved you know, so much time. And he did that all the way along the production line. And his basic thesis was, people are dumb um, with, that make this stuff, we're smarter, so let's not assume anything. And then just went through that production line. That, you, can't, you can't pay a CEO if you're a public company, you can't pay a guy enough or a girl enough to be that committed to and just on that, shareholders. On, on that note, talking about you know optimizing as he went through there, laughing uh, like a child with that chuckle and putting orange paint across all the machines as he left. He's taken that ethos to all of his business: cut, 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 cut until you got to put ten or twenty percent back. You haven't cut enough until you put him yeah. back. And so he did that across Twitter, clearly from eight thousand staff to two thousand staff. Um, all, all these companies goes in there and and slash and burn until you've got the actual barren, the, the most minimal viable product to make the, the uh, object or, or software work. So, the, That story with, the, with those screws, he actually, stay, he asked them to set the setting to 100%, and then it started ruining the screws. So he was like, okay, them. put it back to 90%. He's like, if we're not going back 10% of the time and fixing some mistakes, mm. we haven't pushed hard enough in the first place. So just that willingness to always be pushing forward. Yeah, it's, it's really like refreshing, and we'll talk in a second about um, DealBook and, and the, the waves that that's making, but imagine being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company in America, and you're sitting there watching this, and then all of a sudden, Twitter gets acquired, and he goes in and fires like, I don't know what it was, but it was 70, 80% of the workforce, and guess what? It still works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and somebody posted that on Twitter, and, and Elon responded, better. <laughs> so it not only still works, but it actually works better with most of it gone. And that would have really, I think a lot of corporate CEOs right now in America, are, especially in the tech sector, are really re-evaluating uh, from first principles, what does it take to run this company? Because all of them are incentivized towards shareholders, as they should be. And someone like Elon's come in from, as an engineer, engineering first. And, uh, and he's really just redefining uh, you know what's possible out there. Yeah. Hey, s- separate story. Um, I like the Walter talks about how much Elon loves to play video games. Mm. What, did, what did you guys think of the strategy video games and stuff that Elon plays and getting addicted to those video games? Because some, sometimes I think I need a break from entrepreneurship, but you go and meditate and your mind is still like buzzing and the meditation just doesn't work. And I think 
maybe you need that focus break playing a video game. Maybe I should go back to playing some, some strategy video games. Maybe. I've, ne I've never been a gamer, so I, no. I can't really comment. I used to play like yeah, football, neither, man football manager games, but I haven't played them since. I've never been a gamer uh, either, but a lot of the people that I know that are a lot smarter than me are gamers, there funny enough. So I think it's that kind of techie background, you know? I thought it might be fun, guys, just while we're talking about Elon. Can you, Greg, can you queue up the... the uh, the drag race between the 911 and the new Cybertruck. Oh, so, yeah, this is good. I mean, one of one of the principles that was so strong with the book was Elon was like, and Alex Amosi says the same thing. You can either spend two years building an average product and then the rest of your life selling it, or you can spend two years building an amazing product and then your customers will sell it for you for the rest of your life. Elon doesn't advertise. Um, you know, he just and, and the stories in there about when he acquired Solar City which was run by his cousins. Um, and he said he used to hate that business, which was selling solar panels because they had to go door to door and do all these schemes and salespeople. And, he, and coming from Tesla, he's like, I'm just going to build the world's best car and then they're going to beat a pathway to my door. And in Elon's world, like the commercial, this isn't even a commercial. This would have cost what you're about to see. I, I reckon this would have cost less than 20 grand, right, to make what you're about to see. But most <laughs> Most car people around the world have probably seen this. Let's just run the run this video. It's amazing, and then we'll talk about it. I want a Cybertruck. I know, like, when you see that, for those of you who are listening at home and not seeing the video here of YouTube, uh, that was a Cybertruck, the first pickup truck that Tesla has ever made. Keep that in mind. This is the first time they've entered this category, and it is lined up next to a Porsche 911, and you don't see right till the end, but it not only beat the 911, but it beat the 911 towing a 911 <laughs> behind it. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. And it's not to um, 60 mile an hour, and their torque was 2.6 seconds. I think it does 2.67 without, with or without the trailer. Like the trailer's irrelevant. Wow. Like wow. It, it didn't miss like a tenth of a second. Such a powerful lesson for entrepreneurs, right? Like, you know, it, you, you, if you create something incredible, whether it's a service or whether it's a product, that's truly remarkable. Like as Seth Godin says, purple cow, everything else will be much much easier and i and i found my my years of teaching people about selling products on amazon the biggest challenge was they were okay but they weren't great mm. and it's it's so powerful we we fall into that trap though right like for the last three years i've been building my amazon business and you fall into the trap of trying to hack amazon you go and read a book like that from Elon Musk, and, and I recommend everyone read the, the Steve Jobs book as well if they haven't. And you, you immediately want to start focusing on the product and be, be a better product builder. Um, it, it's you know, something that can be really fulfilled, and it's going to be rewarding because people will just come. It's in that obsession, isn't it? It's in the details of just being absolutely committed to the process. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something, even with this pod, like the amount of energy and time and effort that has gone into getting just to today but we now know the work is ahead of us in the detail of every aspect of what we do. 
and you, you see some of the leading pods in the world, it's that obsession with excellence. It makes everything, it makes it more fun. It enables you to attract A players and keep them. And it enables you to get a sense of like meaning and, and so on from, from the business. Yeah. Very powerful clip. Hats off to Elon. I would love to know how many people are now buying a Cybertruck after watching that well, because I'm like I'm one of them I'm for sure. Them. Yeah. I used to think the Cybertruck looked quite average to be honest with you. Very, I don't know, not, not my type whatsoever uh, for a vehicle. But after watching that clip, I'm like, I'm definitely on the list to get one for sure. Have you watched the reviews online? from some of like the top gear. I've watched some of them. Yeah, yeah. it's got like a review site now. I've got 17 million views on there and I've watched it and I've sent it to four people and it's like, it's not just a hunk of metal, it's, the, it's their own stainless, special type of stainless steel they, they um, uh, manufactured. The, it's a lightweight, it's not actually heavy, it like deceives the eyes, turns on a dime. Like it's, yeah, it's bulletproof. It's like a Joe incredible. Rogan, what was it with the spear, the, wasn't it? Yeah, Joe Rogan <laughs> said I could put my, uh, my one of my arrows. Yeah, through, arrow, you know? that's it, it, yeah. Every time I tell someone I want to get the Cybertruck, I'm like, it's bulletproof and they're like, why does that matter? I'm like, I don't know. It just does. Exactly. It just does. It's, right? it's it bulletproof. But not only that, from the safety perspective, and they went through some of these reviews, not only that, the Model X and Model Y, the two safest cars in the world, full stop, like the Volvo or any of those other um, crazy cars that, um, that were you know, sold on, on the safety aspect, that um, he's nailed A, safety, but B, energy and seat, yeah. style, speed, sport, the whole shebang. Like, he hasn't just nailed one aspect of that car or the car industry, he's nailed the whole bang. So it's, it's incredible. While he's launching rockets and satellites and solar companies <laughs> like boring holes <laughs> under cities. And he's like, actually using that same steel that he's using for the Cybertruck for, for his rockets as well. Mm. Yeah, wow. It's crazy. Their own, I mean, he's integrated sent, stainless. He sent the Tesla in orbit. Yeah, yeah. here's the road stuff. You know, yeah. With an astronaut, you know, a fake astronaut in the driver's seat. Like, I think it'd be fair to say we're, we're all fanboys on the podcast. Yeah, you know? love it. <laughs> so short story, guys, get the book. It's fantastic. It's available on Audible. It's available on Amazon. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, you're aspiring to be an entrepreneur, it's phenomenal. There's another Elon Musk book on there as well on Amazon. Anything Elon Musk is amazing. He's, uh, he's certainly got his flaws, but he's also such an incredible example in all the areas that really are important from a business standpoint. I, I look at him as our uh, modern day Albert Einstein. So I'm, I'm glad he's... Yeah. You know, I'm alive and seeing something like that. He is know, definitely our, our industrialist, right? Yeah. Like he's a cross between Henry Ford yes. and Albert Einstein definitely. all in one. We're lucky to have somebody alive like that right now, in my opinion. I think he's quite funny too. Like he's actually entertaining to oh, watch. Totally. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while we're on the subject of Elon, we're going to move off him soon. But, but I, I think there's some very fascinating movements happening in the world right now, in this post-COVID world. Um, and one of them is this story that's unfolding with uh, the takeover of Twitter and X. Um, for those who are not across the story, you know, Elon bought it uh, for 40, I think it was $43 billion US. Um, and it, it, there's a lot more to that story than just a billionaire buying a platform. And, I, you know, Elon broke the internet a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Deal Summit, uh, Deal Book Summit in New York where he basically uh, stuck the middle finger up to corporate America. Um, we might just play the clip. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's only a very short clip where he's on stage with uh, Sorkin and they're talking about, um, yeah, that's the one, yeah, on stage with Sorkin. And uh, for a little bit of context, Elon says things from time to time which are controversial and uh, big advertisers are saying, look, Elon, you can't say those things if, if you want us to advertise on Twitter. And, 
and some even went as far as to suggest that Elon should go round to advertisers that had left Twitter on the basis of what Elon said in his personal life and apologise uh, in order to get them to come back to uh, Twitter and spend their big corporate dollars on the platform and advertising. So this clip is where Sorkin basically asks Elon, is there any truth to the rumours that you are going to go on an apology tour and apologise to the advertisers that you lost for statements that you made as a private citizen in your private life? So let's see what Elon had to say about that. What was that trip like? And obviously, you know that there's a public perception that, and, and you're clarifying this now, um, but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour, if you will. That this had been said online, there was all of the criticism, there was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger today. I hope today. they stop. You hope? Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f yourself. But go f yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't about, advertise. All right, let's just pause it there. How do you think then about the economics so, you know, Elon's basically, who he's referring to there in the audience is Bob, is Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, and, uh, and among those who believe that Elon should rein it in. I mean, it's pretty ironic trying to bribe a guy worth whatever he's worth, two or $300 billion with money. What, what was your take on that? Like, what did you make of that statement in front of, given who's in that audience, like you've got some serious power players in that audience. How did it make you feel when you saw that clip? I, I think, I think um, <laughs> it's hard to know whether Elon premeditates this stuff or not, or just comes up with it off the cuff. But I think it, 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 it's empowering to, to, to see someone stand up for their beliefs. Like I think um, everyone's getting a little bit tired of the cancel culture, and when you're the richest man in the world, um, I, I think by definition you really shouldn't be. Um, giving in to, to cancel culture and things like that. It's like, I think you were posting on uh, Instagram, it's the true definition of, you know, fuck you money. money, right? Yeah, why well, have fuck you money if you ever, never get to say fuck you? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I th yeah, I, th I thought it was, and then you, if you went on Twitter afterwards, you'd see so many big high profile celebrities actually jumped on board and, and said the same thing, we're canceling our Disney subscriptions, uh, we're done as well. So. Yeah, the only part was Bob Iger was on that morning on DealBook prior to that. So it was pretty fresh of what Bob had said. It wasn't like a three week old article. It was that morning. So um, it went, you know, premeditated probably to a degree, but it was like a, a whole lot of, you know, you fucked me off and uh, have, have it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, for me, I think it was quite, quite a seminal moment. Um, I think this is huge because I think in a post-COVID world, so many people are starting to really understand now because this was sort of the crisis of our generation. Like we didn't have a world war. We didn't have any of that stuff. Mm. But it was the first time we started to really see the influence of governments in our real lives and big business and the importance that if big business is buying the, the news cycle and is paying for what we get to see and how we get to hear things, uh, 
we now connect the dots of what that can actually cost us at a very personal level. And so Elon standing up to big business saying, you know what, fuck you guys. Like we are um, tired of your bullshit. We are not going to be silenced. We're not going to quieten down to make sure that you can still sell your products and service and that we get in line like mainstream media has done and you can't bribe me with money. And I think it was like in a battle where, you know, you plant that flag on new ground and the world has sort of rallied around that flag. Whether you agree with his politics or you don't, or whether you agree with his views or not, I think everybody now understands we need free press. You know, you can't have a functioning democracy without free press. Like it's, it's not a real thing. So I think him going on there and just planting that in the ground, because Disney is one of those companies that, you know, we have... Uh, entrusted our kids with Disney. What a brand, right? Parents are advocating your products for generations and their numbers are tanking because they are bringing a woke agenda to things. Like the saying goes, go woke, go broke. But, you know, when it comes to kids, parents are now stepping in and saying, look, all that stuff I want you to deal with, I want to, that's the domain of me. It's not the domain of Disney. It's me as the parent that parents my child. And I don't trust you with my kids anymore because of the agenda that you're pushing. Mm. And, and I think, and, and we'll watch another clip in a moment where, where Elon really goes a bit deeper and this was the part that was more interesting. But Eric, I'd love to get your take on this as well. Like how, how important was that? I mean, it's funny to see Elon say, go fuck yourself, but there's actually a much more powerful message at play here. Honestly, for me, it's refreshing for someone to have the balls to say that, yeah. you know, live. Because I think a lot of people don't speak the truth because of the effect it has on the money in their back pocket. Mm. And when you're the richest man in the world and you've paid 43 odd billion dollars for Twitter as an example, and him to say, you know, go fuck yourself, he really doesn't give a shit. Mm. It's very, very clear that whether they pay for the sponsorship or not, he doesn't need them. And I think in future, they're gonna need him a lot more than he needs them now. Mm. And I think he premeditates this stuff, uh, to mm. be honest. I really, really do. This is what I was discussing with you before, like the whole buying of Twitter and changing it to X. And, you know, to me, controversy equals eyeballs, right? Like, Greg, I don't know if you can pull it up, but how many views has this video had? Oh, there's probably a few cuts of it, yeah. right? Like I don't the, know if that's the... I don't know which ones, but, but... But there would be... There'd be tens of millions. Tens of millions of, millions of views, yeah. right? At the end of the day, so... Like if Bob's going to go and speak back about that, it ain't going to have half as many views, you know? Mm. And And I I think coming from a guy that people know he sleeps on the production line with the workers that, you know, this is an industrialist. He's not a banker. He's not somebody who makes money by making up paper and trade. This is a dude that builds things and and adds values to people. Whether you think EV is a good for the environment, whatever, this is a dude that actually makes real stuff. And I think that adds a lot of weight cred. And I think when he took it over and and had 8,000 staff, pulled it back to 2,000 and said, funnily, you don't need that many people to run a chat bot, I'm sorry, a live chat. And I don't know whether profitability, you'd probably know a bit more about this, but you know, I think it's closer to profit than it's ever been when it was public to where it is now. And yet you still get people, even after this, and you've got that, uh, uh, that swell, you know, that, that um, 
following now people are saying you know go fuck yourself is the hashtag of people boycotting disney but you know you still get um articles like today from business insiders you know elon musk's fire luck's finally run out and they're talking about his overconfidence and risk-taking and you know fun, this financial strain on twitter and that because of his is you know his comments like this that, and he's so tightly uh financially uh, stuck with twitter a uh, tesla if that takes a slide that's going to have a cascading effect on twitter and and it's like you know, the guys on the All In podcast, uh, the, the, all these mates, you just don't bet against Elon. I mean, the thing's financially viable now, so why is it going to take a slide after a comment like that? I think but it's only going to gather momentum. Like you said, he doesn't care. He actually doesn't give a fuck. I mean, he's there to create good products. Mm. And, and he goes into his ventures knowing that there's a high probability of failure, but he does it to advance the world forward in sustainable energy or in space travel. That, that's his goal, to, to move the world forward. Mm. I don't think, I mean... You know, it's part of him, of course, that wants to do it. But I think he would also take satisfaction out of seeing other people move the world forward as well. Totally. Yeah. I mean, look at the look at the patents. Like he's turned all his patents over to the public. Like he's not trying to. You can't accuse the guy of hoarding stuff. And he is, as you know, I saw Chamath Palahapatia on Fox. I think it was no, one of the big uh, shows in San Francisco. And the, and, the, and the mainstream media guy interviewing him was intent on trying to talk to him about Elon smoking weed on the Rogan show or all this stuff. <laughs> and Chamath just cut the guy up and said, listen, mate, you're talking about window dressing here. He said, let me ask you a question. You look out in the bay here in San Francisco Harbor. He says, you can see that if I put a pontoon out there, and, and we got a one wood each and tried to drive a golf ball and land it in a teacup in the middle of San Francisco Bay and I gave you a million shots. How many times do you reckon you get it in the, in the cup? And he goes, I don't think I'd get it in the cup once. He said, exactly. You're talking about a guy who does that over and over and over with rockets <laughs> and lands them on a, the equivalent of a pinhead in the middle of the ocean so you can reuse them. And you're talking to me about whether he was out of line smoking weed on the Rogan show that's completely legal. He says, ask me some serious questions or the interview's over. Yeah. And, it's, and that's, that's what we need to get the you know, people focused now. And I think the world has woken up a lot and that's why we love Elon so much. He, he creates the impossible possible, you know, and that's the exciting thing about him, you know. And I think that's why he's getting the views. And like you look at what you just said, Mark, and said there was multiple people after that's boycotting Disney, right? Stars, famous people, whoever they are. Would they have done that without him saying, go fuck yourself? You wouldn't have heard about it. They wouldn't have done it. Mm. So the influence that he has, whether you like him or not, is very, very powerful. Enormous. Yeah. Enormous. Let's just play that clip a little bit further on. Um, this is the part that's really interesting. And then we're going to move off Elon. Um, and, and this is where he's talking about the the bet that's basically being made this is a game of poker I, I, what you'll see is I, I don't think the interviewer here is even close to understanding what elon's getting because he's a muppet that works for mainstream media versus a guy who has a truly global business and and understands that he's walking across multiple dimensions at the same time but let's let's watch the clip and we'll come back no, actually what what this advertising boycott is uh, is, is going to do it's, it's going to kill the company And you think that the I, I, but, and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. But there are those advertisers, I imagine, are going to say they're going to say we didn't kill the company. Oh yeah, they're going to say tell it to, tell it to Earth. But they're going to say that they're going to say Elon that you killed the company because you said these things, and that they were inappropriate things, and that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. Right. Let's that's see, that's and, what and they're going to say. And let's see how Earth responds to that. 
So let me, okay, this, then this goes back to we'll, the, we'll both make our cases, right? And we'll see what the outcome is. What are the economics of that for you? I mean, you, you have enormous resources, so you can actually keep this company going for a very long time. Would you keep it going for a long time if there was no advertising? I mean, if the company fails because of an advertiser boycott, it will fail because of an advertiser boycott, and that will be what bankrupted the company, and that's what everybody on Earth will know. But what do you think, then, of the... I, I guess, this goes back to the idea of trust, though. Then it'll I, be gone. And it'll be gone because of an advertiser boycott. But, but you recognize that some of those people are going to say that they didn't feel comfortable on the platform. And I, I, wonder, I just wonder and ask you and think about that for a Tell second. Tell it to the judge. But the, but the judge is going to be... Uh, the judge is the public. And you think that the public is going to say that, that Disney is making a mistake? Yes. And they're going to boycott Disney? They already are. Well, there are, there are some that are for, for, for lots of different reasons. Okay, but you think that this is going to... So you can see this is a game of poker, right? Like we all play poker together. This is a game of poker. And Elon is raising the stakes and he's going all in on the idea of this is me taking a stand with a $43 billion poker chip. I am quite willing to lose it all and let the public, the guy interviewing him, Andrew didn't even really get who the judge was. He just straight over his head. When, when, he, when he says things like the judge is the public or let the chips fall where they may, that's when I look at Elon and say he is premeditating this because he understands intimately how his following and his fan base will respond uh, to, this, to this kind of thing. It's, it's incredible. It's so fascinating to watch. You know, I, I personally am a huge fan of what he's doing at, at TwitterX because there is no other platform at that scale that is not controlled by corporate interests and money. When you look behind it all, um, you don't even have to look hard. Who's paying for the ads? That's it. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's pretty simple. All right, moving on. Let's, uh, let's get off uh, Elon. We are big Elon fans here. We're going to move to the next story, which is Tucker Carlson. Um, still in the US. We're going to bring it home today with a, uh, a story out of Australia. But um, for those of you who don't know Tucker Carlson, because we recognize a lot of you guys, uh, Australian, New Zealand, uh, if you don't follow US politics or US happenings. Tucker Carlson was the biggest, highest rated uh, news anchor in the United States on Fox, $20 million a year salary. Um, and he was fired in April of this year without any reason. So this is the Rupert Murdoch empire. Um, and obviously, since he's gone off the air, when you are the number one guy in the country, it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows, a lot of interest in what you're going to do next. Um, and news broke on Saturday out of the US that Tucker is starting his own uh, subscription uh, media company, basically where you pay a fee annually or monthly to subscribe to his content. Very curious guy. He was recently on the All In Pod. Um, and uh, it's been a bit of fun, you know, because watching this, obviously, uh, if you're a mainstream media company and the number one guy's gone rogue and he's going to start his own thing and you have no control over the guy that was inside the Murdoch empire at the highest level, uh, it's going to, and a guy that has openly expressed his curiosity for subjects that you would never have explored on, on Fox, many of which are against their sort of um, policy, uh, things get a bit nervous. And I'll just play one quick clip, which is a bit of fun, that just shows you how uh, it's, stir it's stirring a certain segment of the US. This is him. Were you going to say something? Yeah, it's a perfect example of why we need people like Elon to buy Twitter, right? Right, exactly. And, and, and he did initially do some shows on Twitter uh, because he could say what he wanted without fear of 
uh, you know, being uh, censored. So this is a clip from UFC just recently entered the room with a couple of characters that certainly got uh, a segment of American voters very excited. So let's take a look. How strong that team is making his way into the building. One of the bigger mixed martial arts fans. I know President Donald Trump taking his octagon side seat for UFC 295 here in a matter of moments, live from Madison Square Garden. All right, that's enough. Is that Kid Rock? Yeah, yeah it is Kid, Kid that's, Rock. That's Kid Rock, Donald Trump, and probably the most loved, I think, and widely respected CEO in corporate America, Dana. in Dana White. Like, he is... We need to do a show on Dana White. We, we, yeah, we it's need incredible. to do it. That guy is a boss. Yeah. Like, he is just the the greatest. <laughs> he but, too recently just told advertisers to, to go jump uh, for trying to, to muzzle him. And uh, he said, uh, he's using Peloton gear now, all of our gyms, right? Get them out, fuck them off, they're gone. Yeah. Cut them. Dana's, oh, no, Dana's told a lot of people to go fuck themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of people have doubted Dana over the years. Yeah. And, and uh, but what he's done with UFC, like on in his office on in, in uh, the UFC arena, um, it says, God help my enemies because I sure as hell won't, <laughs> you know. Um, and for those of you who didn't recognize, Tucker walked in with them. And so you can imagine um, the uh, nervousness when you see a guy who was the number one trusted news guy in mainstream media has left and is now walking into an arena with Donald Trump. That's going to have all kinds of repercussions politically, uh, media-wise, business-wise. So. I think it was Patrick Bet David that was uh, tipping that Tucker would eventually run for president. Mm. Seeing that makes me think that he might be onto something. Or at least there's a lot of talk that he might run as uh, Donald's, uh, you know, running mate. Really? Um, wow. So, and Pat, Pat actually offered um, mm. $100 million to Tucker to come and join Valuetainment, which... Um, which at the time I thought, man, that's a lot of cash. But then as I've learned more about the cloud of the guy, you realize that could be a great investment. Definitely. But um, it's, it's interesting, you know, the reason we're covering this on here, guys, is because one of the things with Unemployable is we want to really start to expand your minds at home uh, about the world that we're moving into and the opportunities that this new world presents. And a lot of time when we're sitting, I know where you're listening to this right now, whether you're on the train coming into work, uh, going home from work at the gym, but it's so easy for us to have our minds constrained to the you know five kilometer radius in which we do 80% of our living, our home, our supermarket, our gymnasium, our job, you know, five, 10 Ks, whatever it is. And we forget there's a big, big world out there. And those entrepreneurs that are staying in touch with the scale of the planet and the opportunities that are available today. We're gonna to talk later in the pod about um, you know, um, you know, immigration and, and how it's impacting opportunities and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time that there is this negative data and this negative sentiment perhaps for millennials coming up with house prices and all these things, at the same time, there is unprecedented opportunities. Just to give you a couple of stats out of the article, um, Greg, you can throw it on the screen while I'm talking, um, the Variety article. Um, it was announced in the press everywhere. No, next one, you'll see it's uh, from variety.com uh, with Tucker. But anyway, you'll find that and throw it up. But basically, uh, the headline is it's $72 a year to subscribe to the channel, which is about six bucks a month. When they do open it, it'll be $90. Uh, a, a month normally. 
What I found interesting in the article um, is that it says here that the company, this is uh, Tucker Carlson um, Network, TCN, it was funded with a $15 million funding led by 1789 Capital, which is an anti-woke investment fund founded by investment banker Omid Malik. This is what I love about America, that there is actually VC funds committed just to anti-woke companies. Like in Australia, we have a very limited VC scene by comparison. So they've basically given uh, Tucker and his business partner $15 million to launch the channel. That's the article there. You can see it um, coming up there. But for those of you who don't know how, uh, look, the most, most people in Australia, they sort of understand how much money OnlyFans girls make. But that's, <laughs> that, that's one level. But these guys that are going independent media now are making huge dollars. Like some of you might have heard of Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro has a uh, far-right show uh, called The Daily Wire. Um, he's got some really talented people on that show, and uh, you know, including Jordan Peterson, Candace Owens, people like that. That was just revealed. Those guys now have a million subs, paying them uh, eighty-five, sorry, one hundred eighty-five dollars a year to subscribe to their private wow. media. Right? Think about that. That's one hundred eighty-five million dollars a year producing content that speaks to mostly the anti-woke agenda. You know, political uh, leaning definitely to the right. But for, for people listening at home, it makes you understand that these days you can distribute content products uh, and so on globally, you know, uh, when you start to see this, these massive macro shifts. And, and one of them, of course, is, is media dying. What do you make of it, um, guys? What, what's your thoughts on Tucker's move? Do you think it's a, a logical thing? I, I personally think it was. Uh, a very logical move. I think it's a very good move. It goes to show you, like you look at the Ben Shapiro numbers, you know, 185 million people might think he's crazy not taking the 100 million yeah. from uh, PBD, but I don't think it's going to take him long to get a few million followers, you know, paying $72, you know, there's a couple hundred mil just there. Um, again, Tucker Carlson, I think, is a man of his word. You know, he's very similar to Elon as an example, right? They're controversial, con controversy. Um, gets eyeballs and I read an article and uh, it was again controversial one that he went to a Hells Angels president's funeral because he wanted to honor a man who spoke true words <laughs> and he used words like stay loyal remain free and always value honor you know and to me that's Tucker Carlson that's Elon Musk you know these are the new guys that are inspiring people to actually believe in themselves and help people speak up because there's a lot of people out there that are walking the streets with their mouths closed because they don't want to be judged and the more of these people that come out and you know give them give people the motivation and the inspiration to feel like it's okay to speak the truth I th I'm all for that Tucker must be feeling like a free man because you know you can imagine the advertisers would have shit their pants if there was Tucker Carlson at a Hell's Angels. Yeah. Um, but, you know, imagine the, the financial repercussions of the drug companies trying to virtue signal to mainstream correct, America. Yeah, but like, like, remain free, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, that's why he's doing what he's doing. It's powerful, and, right? And fair play to him, like the brand equity he built on the, off the back of Fox and the, the way they treat him, it's like, well, hang on, I've got an entrepreneurial bone in me as well. We'll see how this pans out. And the, you said a couple of eyeballs, the, the amount of eyeballs that he's got is huge. Uh, it was, which was evidence, it's massive. Which was I mean, evidence on X. So you know that, um, and then then he'll have you know, complete agency over the, the content that that he wants to deliver, um, which you know from a few of the naysayers could be like an echo chamber effect. But I think he'll he'll um, nurture that audience quite well. I think he's smart enough to surround himself yeah. with 
dissenting voices as well. Well, you look at someone like, um, just on that point as well, not to digress too much off Tucker, but Piers Morgan said the same thing. He's the UK version of Tucker, effectively, and he's mainstream media groomed from the get-go, and he's now got Piers Morgan uncensored. And he was just commenting, uh, to your point, about the different outlets now, that the, the pull from YouTube is like 10x, 20x than, than the, the mainstream media channels that he's usually been hosting. Yeah, well, it's got, there's just some data for the people at home listening. It's Fox News gets about 1.5 million viewers at prime time. So if you times that by 30 days, right, for the month, they're getting about a, uh, 45 million viewers a month at prime time. The Joe Rogan show gets 11 million listeners per episode, and he does on average uh, 15 a month. So he's getting 165 million, which is four times larger than the largest TV network at prime time in the United States. And what Joe might have 15, 20 people on the team versus Fox News Corporation who were paying Tucker alone 20 million bucks a year just for Tucker, mm. let alone all the infrastructure costs of the entire news machine behind him. It's just mind blowing. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, you, you look at Pierce Morgan. Why does he use that word uncensored? Because, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> right. Because that's what people want. Yeah. You know, people want uncensored because they're sick of everything being censored you know, one-sided, people want to see both sides, right? Like they say, there's, you know, uh, two sides to a story and then the truth somewhere in the middle. You know, that's what people want to see. Very, very interesting time. So for all of you entrepreneurs out there, what, you know, one of the things that we look for is always these big shifts, global shifts in how things are working. There's never been more capital available. There's never been you know, bigger opportunities. It's why you're in healthcare, right? It's why you're in certain businesses that you're in. Um, you're actually moving into the wellness space, right? So we're getting into where the, the puck is going, not where it is today, but where it's going. And this is just yet another example of that. And I think, you know, when you're building a brand, um, we're starting to see those um, sort of shifts in, in the way people are presenting brands, the way they're marketing. Um, we're seeing much more, uh, you know, connective, type of marketing these days and what we've seen in the past. Let's move on to um, Australian immigration to close it off. I made a post earlier this week on, uh, on my Instagram and uh, Greg, you might just wanna bring this up. This is a video I posted by a famous Australian called Dick Smith. So for those of you who do not live in Australia or maybe New Zealand, Dick Smith, very famous Australian entrepreneur, um, had a, uh, a chain of electronic stores called Dick Smith Electronics. Uh, later on when Vegemite was sold. Vegemite is a very famous... I mean, what did you think of the first time you had Vegemite, Eric? What? <laughs> I, I, I licked it off a popsicle stick on its own, and I hated it, and every time I tell the story, it's like, that's not the way you're supposed to eat it. It's the first time it touched my tongue, and it's the last. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, when, when uh, Vegemite was sold to Chinese interest, I think it was Chinese interest, Dick Smith started um, Aussie Mite, uh, to try and keep it manufactured in Australia and, and as, as well as many other, you know, things like ketchup and things that have been offsawed. But anyway, he's a well-loved Australian. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people would refer to him as a boomer. Uh, but <laughs> we might just watch this. He did this, uh, this, uh, this is on 60 Minutes, where he spoke about immigration in Australia, and then I'm going to get your thoughts and, uh, and, and talk about this for a minute. Let's roll. Put our immigration down to 70,000 a year, which is the long-term average, our population would level off at about 30 million, and that's what we should be doing. By holding that position, as you do, that immigration numbers are almost three times too much, 
some of your critics will say you're racist. Yes, it's got nothing to do with racism. It's just common sense. One day we'll have to stop growing, even if that's when we get to a billion people. We should be discussing it now, and my belief is we should stop the growth now if we want to have a quality of life for our children and grandchildren. I, when I bought my house, Pip and myself, we bought a house that cost $32,000 in Sydney in 1970. And I think it was about four times the annual salary. Now it's over double or even more than that. Young couples can't afford a house with a block of land where the kids can play in a cubby house. That's wrong. We should never have got into that situation where young couples are forced into high rise like termites. The kids are no longer free range kids like I was. You're a sort of a battery hen. I mean, we spend 50 million dollars a year to get free-range chooks. What about our kids? All right, let's stop it there. So, you know, when I posted that video, it's had thousands of shares and my Instagram account is not that big, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's under 50,000. So it's had over 2,000 shares, over 880 wow. comments um, and a lot of heated debate in the comments. It's really hit a nerve. And I think, um, you know, there's an article uh, which Greg will bring up in a second there. Um, we're we're um, based around an interview that uh, uh, Ben Fordham did with uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, our Prime Minister Albanese, and he was talking about the current immigration rate. This past 12 months uh, is over 500,000 uh, uh, people making Australia home for the very first time this last year, according to Abdul Rizvi, the uh, uh, former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Immigration, it is 500,000 migrants will have moved to Australia in the year to September, which is considerably over our long-term average. Um, we might just quickly play the video, if we can, on this page, and then we're going to chat this through. So let's, let's have a listen to Ben. Of course, we've got an ad. We'll skip the ad in a second. <laughs> All right. 500,000 people moved to our country in the 12 months to September. And just remember, we're not talking about tourists or people on a business trip. This is half a million people who've packed up their lives and now call Australia home. It's a rate we've never seen before in the history of this country. And with the Reserve Bank considering an interest rate rise on Melbourne Cup Day, some of our leading economists are warning our migration levels are adding pressure on inflation. Paul Bloxham, He's the chief economist at HSBC. He used to work at the Reserve Bank. He's told the Financial Review, our estimates suggest that a positive shock to migration is net inflationary in the short run. Our view is the cash rate will increase by 25 basis points in November. And he's not alone. Westpac's chief economic advisor, Lucy Ellis, says domestic demand pressures are still driving inflation strong population growth is a factor here all right so that's ben i'm going to get your thoughts in a minute and keeping in mind as we sit here today there's four of us at the desk and we've got greg our awesome producer sitting back there two of the three of us our first generation sorry two of the five of us have immigrated here um, and the rest of us are basically convicts who's uh, <laughs> parents came out here as immigrants a while ago. So um, with that backdrop, what do you guys make of this? I mean, Dick's got a pretty extreme view and trying to cap it at 30 million. My personal view is I think that's a little bit um, uh, low. And I think Australia has been built on immigration. Um, and immigrants, in my view, bring a whole bunch of value. But is it too much with the housing crisis shortage? Um, is it a real thing that Aussies are losing jobs to immigrants? 
Um, what do you make of these sort of factors? How much of it's real? How, mu how much of it's xenophobic and imagined? Um, what, what are your thoughts? So let's turn it over to... I mean, I mean there's, a few, there's a few questions that, I'd, that I have around it that I'd like to understand a little bit deeper. Like, it, is it skilled mi migrants that are coming into the country that we do know we need more nurses? Are they, are they majority of them nurses? Um, why is the number so high? It looks like, you know, after the war, the migration numbers were high. Now, after COVID, the migration numbers are high. I'd like to get some explanation from our leaders as to why these numbers are so high. I mean, there are some theories out there that they're trying to underpin the property market, that they don't want a property market crash, and that they're trying to underpin the, the, the economy. And, and, you know, taxpayer revenue and migration is one way to grow your GDP, right? Um, so, you know, maybe there needs to be a little bit more communication around that. But, you know, no doubt it, it, it's a high number. And, and when people are missing out, you know, my, my sister and um, brother-in-law were missing out on auctions for, for months and months and months um, and getting outbid by people from, from, you know, who have migrated from other countries. Now, they're not racist, but they were disappointed to be missing out and, and they're wondering why they're being outpriced. So I don't know, I can kind of see it from, from both avenues, but I'd love to know from our leaders a little bit deeper as to why the number is so high. Mm. I, think, I think you sort of answered it. If they're outbidding your family, they probably are skilled. Um, you know, they're not just labor, right? Like they're, 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 there's some definitely skilled labor coming in. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts, James? Like, yeah, there's, you know, there's obviously fours and against, um, and you know, there, there's a housing shortage, who's gonna build them? Like, but then it's like the markets come in and you've got to build housing for them as well. So it's like, where does it end? Um, but then there's also the um, you know, social challenges that come with it as well right now. Like we've got people living in cars, we've got um, people going without healthcare um, to a degree, even though we've got allegedly one of the better healthcare um, uh, policies in, in the world. But you know, where's the resource allocation go uh, to people who are currently, uh, you know, Aussies, if you will, or the people are coming in? It's going to be um, tight on all fronts, not just in that housing perspective. Yeah, I mean, that gap, the, the gap for our young people is, is, is a bit concerning. You know, the, the home ownership rates for people, millennials where they are today are half, less than half of what they were for the boomers. Um, because kids today can't just, it takes, I think it was, I've got the data actually in a, a video we're doing shortly, but I think it takes uh, three times as long now um, to save a deposit. I think it's something like 13 or 14 years. I've got the data, I should have had it here today, but, but as opposed to like three years for, the, for boomers coming up. So I can understand why the millennials are finding it tough and are in some ways angry. I don't know that they can be angry at boomers for that. Like boomers didn't make the property prices go up, but I understand their frustration in not, and especially given that they can see that most of the wealth the boomers created originated from the equity in their home and, and why today most of the wealth in this country and many others is controlled by that one section of, of our community. There's discussions around definitely the opportunities are probably much broader and bigger for for millennials but you're a numbers guy eric and you're in the in the business of property how do you see in this playing out because we do have a housing shortage that is a real thing and then when you just add five hundred thousand families coming in to that housing shortage and you, i know you've got some data on other things that affect the housing shortage i mean there's definitely a housing shortage and i don't think the government has an answer for it. I, I honestly don't think because, you know, I did some calculations in the past just on the Gold Coast. 
in regards to population growth, how many homes they're building, how much greenfield land that we have here, how many units they're building, and there was a shortage of about 60,000 units needed for the population growth up to 2041. Like they, they, they just don't, we don't have the resource to build, like James was saying, you need the people to build them, we don't have the people, but then when we bring the people in, where are they gonna go, where are they gonna live, you know, to then build the houses that they need to be living in. Mm. So I see, I see uh, Australia um, as a country turning into something similar to Europe. In Europe, majority of the people rent, right? Majority of people aren't uh, buying, they don't have mortgages. And most of the real estate is owned just in less hands, you yeah. know, so more of the, you know, which builds wealth. More of the wealthy people will own multiple properties and majority of the people will just rent. Like if you look at it and you're saying, you got to save 13 years for a deposit, but now on average, when it used to be three, when you hit the 13th year, when you started, what's that property worth now? Yeah. You ain't going to get in the market. Yeah. Like, like realistically, unless you're earning big money or unless... The, you have uh, your parents or someone that has, you know, been in the market for time because real estate's all about time. You know, I remember buying my first house; it was one hundred fifty-five thousand. Like that house today is one point two million dollars. You know, one hundred fifty-five thousand at a five percent deposit, you could scrounge up seventy-five hundred bucks, put a deposit, pay twenty-five hundred, you know, a couple grand to the solicitor. Well, back then would have been a thousand. Ten grand, you're in a property, you know, and that, that's that, that's just the way I see it. That's where you see all these um, fair, different ethnicities um, having pooled income and having that communal style where they actually load up all, all wages, one house turns into two, turns into three, turns into four. It's been going on for centuries in certain, mm. certain religious uh, um, religions. So, and you see it a lot with the, um, a lot of the Indian families in Australia coming together. They're living. The, yeah, they pool, live together. They pool, save their correct. money. And maybe we need to learn a little bit from that. Yeah. We, we are becoming a little bit more like Europe and the other big cities of the world as well. I remember when I started selling land in 2007, there was this amazing statistic that Australia was one of the only countries in the developed world where the house sizes were still getting bigger in Greenfields Estates. So this is relatively new for Australians to, to be priced out of the property market and not to be able to afford a home. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity for millennials and young people to rent vest. So, you know, not necessarily to be able to buy in the areas where you want to live, but rent and then go and buy in, in the Greenfields areas in, in Queensland or in Melbourne, because there is still some growth to be had in those areas at a lower price point as well. Yeah. There's, uh, with that though, there's, uh, you have a double whammy, especially places like the Gold Coast. Oh, I know this specifically, the rental market's that short as well. So it's what you go, I'll, re I'll invest out in you know, Ipswich, uh, uh, those areas like that, Toowoomba, I'm gonna rent here. It's like, I can't rent here either. Yeah. So, so it's like, well, you know. Yeah, it's, it is interesting when I travel, I do see that people are not nearly as fixated on property prices as they are in Australia because most of them are renters. They're, yeah. they're just not something they think about. In the US it was the same. Like when I was in LA, very few people actually rented, certainly not in my circles anyway. I, I, sorry, owned, they mostly I rented. Just, I think majority of the wealth in Australia is very different than somewhere like the US. Majority of the wealth is held in property here. You yeah. know? In the stock US, market. they're big on the stock market as right. an example, right? So, but I think, yeah, people will be displaced. Quality of life will be and is being affected now. And people need to adjust their expectations. What, I'm, what I tell people is buy where you can afford and rent where you wanna live. Yeah. Because just get in the market. Because you know what, you wanna live near the beach or you wanna live you know, in Broad Beach or Mermaid Waters as, a, as an example on the Gulf Coast, most people will not be able to afford there. But at least renting there 
is will be more affordable than buying there but even renting now is becoming very very difficult and i was having a chat with with sam this morning um a good friend of ours and he's looking at shared housing at the moment he was looking at maybe moving in with two uh, with one person and now he's looking at maybe moving in with uh, a second person so three of them as an example and this is t to me this is what people need to do is adjust their expectations i went to canada last year as an example and there's a big big change a big influx of immigration um, from people from different countries and majority of those people are living uh, in shared housing but not just three single guys i'm talking two families mm -hmm. you know and does that affect quality of life? Damn right it affects quality of life, you know? Well, you, had, you were just telling me this morning about a girl who it was uh, living down in Currumbin. Yep. And she's on over 100 grand a yep. year. And the rent got upped by 25%. Yeah, correct. And now she's gone north to Pimpama, which yep. is going to change her commute. She lives in uh, Currumbin, works in Burley. And now she has to commute from Pimpama, which is going to be a 40-minute trip yeah. at that time of day. So, That's a massive impact, not to mention demographically very different in Pimpama than, than uh, Corumba. Yeah, correct. You know, it's but, a, but I think this is the reality. There's no, there's no quick fix. Yeah. You know, we have a supply and demand problem. You know, there's people from you know, interstate flocking here still, you know, because, again, property prices there. Well, this doesn't friend. help, does it? Behind us. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've got we've got the beach, we've got the weather, right? Somewhere like Sydney and Melbourne um, doesn't have that. They've got a lot of other things. But at the same time, you know, I know someone that's bought 60 kilometers away from the city in Sydney, which a friend of mine is like, you wouldn't want to live there. And they've just paid $1.4 million wow. for a four-bed, two-bath house. Like $1.4 million still goes a long way on the Gold Coast. Yeah. And you're not 60 kilometers away from the beach, you know? But, but, you know, we're going to have this conversation in five or ten years' time, and, and it's going to be the same price here, yeah. 60Ks out from, yeah. from Brisbane. So, yeah. you know, we have to understand those trends. And, we, yeah. and like you said, these are the times we live in, and we have to try and find a way to, to be involved and to we're be part of it. We're changing as a country. I mean, we're a very young country, and I'm sure these types of things probably happened historically in other places. Yeah. But hundreds or thousands of years ago we're just sort of evolving and growing up as a nation true and and we are um just so blessed in so many ways to be here in australia i, I heard a really interesting theory i'd love to get your feedback before we wind up the pod um i, I don't know if it's a theory or a fact that it made perfect sense to me that uh we had a gentleman come up for a meeting with eric and i and he was talking to us about a thing called the age sex pyramid i don't know if you've ever heard of the age sex pyramid so the age sex pyramid, if you saw it as a graph, imagine um, there's a bar that is at the bottom that goes, you know, that's elongated on its side. And this is zero to five year olds and then five to 10 year olds and then 10 to 15 year olds. And these bars are stacked on top, top of each other. And it's supposed to be a pyramid because people get older and die. And then we have a growth rate of 2.7 or 2.6. So we're broadening the base. People are dropping off. And that's, that's sort of how it's supposed to be economically. But here in Australia, when Keating was in and they brought in the um, superannuation, our boomers were investing their wealth via their super, minimizing their tax of 15%, putting it in and tax-free when they pull it out. And so what's happened and our birth rate has dropped so the um below two percent so uh there's no widening of the base and it's becoming a column and not only is it becoming a column but our wealthiest uh, segment of that column is not paying tax 
So in retirement, because they're pulling it out tax-free, so the tax base is gone. And so in the middle, you've got, you know, these working class, you know, people in the middle, and there's not enough of them to pay for the country. And so as a politician, you want to get voted back in, which is what you talked about, Mark, which is keep the property prices up, you keep Australians happy, right? Yeah. Not all Australians, but you keep you know, uh, families, I guess, happy. Um, and you saw what happened when the um, Labor government tried to bring in uh, getting rid of CGT uh, and... Abolish negative gearing. Uh, abolish negative gearing. That, that, they had that, that election was theirs to lose and they lost it on that one policy um, that the, the people spoke. And so you, you look at that and you go, well, if you're in government, and I can't imagine the way government people think because I'm an entrepreneur, it's a very different mindset, but you want to get elected again, so you keep the property prices up, you keep the budget in a great place. Yeah. So what better way than bringing in 500,000 skilled immigrants to fill that out? And I, look, I'm, I'm really torn on it because I, I'm sitting here today with an amazing producer who's from New York originally. Uh, he's been here for 18, 18 years, Greg. 18 years so he's really Aussie but he, he sounds a little bit like New York he's definitely got the New York cool going on and you got Eric here who's a business partner now he's created massive economic value and jobs for the nation so I think managed well it can be good but I also think there's a real case for um, it, I think it's in experimental territory when you go from two to fifty a year to five hundred thousand and I believe that it's projected to continue at that rate to 2032. You're talking about 4 million new people in the next eight years. That is a lot of housing. That's a lot of infrastructure um, stress. That is a lot of you know, stress on a system. And I just hope we don't blow it up. Hmm. But, but at the same time, I do know so many small business owners can't get you know australians as in to to apply for jobs or do a great job mm. um, and as a capitalist i know that competition breeds excellence and this morning at the coffee shop where i go to all the time i reckon 80 percent of the workers there are non-australian you know so it's a, it's a really interesting challenge how do we keep the country growing and thriving and being prosperous and still having that wealth for toil what i do know for sure is if you cut it off all completely I don't think there's ever been an instance of that working out that well either. But then you look to America where the border controls none and look at what, how that's manifested in homelessness and all sorts of problems, just not the sit. When I was in California, I used to pay my taxes and I'd go, what am I getting for this? Mm -hmm. Like I, I went there a full on unapologetic capitalist and I came home as like, oh, actually, I don't mind paying some tax because, you know, uh, I don't want to have those types of problems on my doorstep because the city can't afford to have any programs or support for people when they fall off the bottom of the rung which happens in america and then you see it and i'm seeing it here on the gold coast mm -hmm. now like we're at ferry road markets two days ago my wife and i which is a fancy posh type of joint and there was a couple of homeless people lying sideways outside of chemist warehouse which if you're in the heart of sydney you, you kind of go okay that's you know that's what you expect but on the Gold Coast, in Ferry Road markets, you don't see that. Yeah. And, and it, it really makes you think, wow, we're not doing, we're not keeping up with, uh, you know, with the problems. And when I was in Los Angeles, my animation company, I used to walk past 10 homeless people, severe psychiatric problems, 
in the 20 meter walk from my office door to the coffee shop and it was just the street smell of urine because the systems didn't cope which is what I'm worried about. We're starting to see more of that in uh, Melbourne as well in Chapel, on Chapel Street like mm. every day there's there's a new homeless person on Chapel Street out the front of the 7-Eleven or the, the chemist warehouse or the Coles asking for money so yeah the problem definitely is getting getting worse. Uh, and and it's an interesting point that you touched on before with the population like we're not having enough kids and it's another thing that Elon Musk talks about that w one of the biggest crises that he's facing humanity is that we're not having enough kids and that our population is going to be in decline so yeah I mean it's, there's no short-term fixes I think that's the point yeah but who's having kids the western world aren't having kids yeah. But there's a lot of cultures still having plenty of kids. Yeah. And those are the ones that are coming into the countries. Yeah. Right? Like Australia and Canada, you know, and they're willing to work and they're willing to live together. And I can guarantee you, you won't see many of those cultures, right? The ones on the street yep. begging for money. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in LA, culturally, like, I never saw a Mexican that was homeless. Never. Because mm. they're, they're a working culture. Um, <laughs> uh, it's funny you say that. Um, there's a, a guy that I met in Arizona, and he's a, a real estate coach, and he owns hundreds of properties, and he's got a big real estate coaching program. And uh, in Arizona, is a big Mexican population, and he goes, I only rent to Mexicans. I will not rent to a white American racist. person. Proper racist, right? <laughs> and this is what he said, because he goes, no one takes mama's house away, right? They all chip in, yeah. right? Multiple family members, and they all chip in. And he goes... Um, the, uh, you know, what he called the white American person will sit there and brag about not paying rent over having lunch, you know, and that was his take on it, you know, again, this is what he said, you know, so it's, it's very interesting, you know, like not being racist, but obviously his, his opinion was quite racist, you know? Um, I mean, I don't think Australians are immune to becoming fat and happy, you know, like we, we will live in such a blessed country and we've had yeah. such abundance, even if the kids haven't, the parents have. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so when an immigrant arrives in our country, like one of our coaching clients that we just had, his, he, um, Dash, Darshan, you know, he's Indian. He came here in 2019 on a student immigrant visa, sorry, a student visa. Uh, and started a company now. He has 85 employees. Hmm. He just finished in the Forbes under 40, uh, and he's got five investment properties. And he, he just came and, and worked, you know? Like, when I went to America, I was the same. I had to make it work to stay there. And so people would comment to me, you know, man, I've never seen somebody come in with so much enthusiasm for the country and work so hard. And I was like, dude, you don't understand. If I don't hit the goals, my visa, I get booted. Mm. I have to create jobs. I have to pay taxes. And if I don't, then there's no beneficial, I'm not beneficial to the US system when you go in legit legally like that. And, and I, I was net positive to the US. Um, so, and I, I think there is a, I, I think we need to be very careful not to uh, say, ah, oh, dirty immigrants and all the stuff that this Aussie culture, it's, it's wrong. And at the same time, they need to be skilled and assimilate. You think of it just for context on a different vein. You think the 4 million by 2032, what are we, that's eight years circa. Um, that's Perth and Brisbane combined. From a, a population context, it's like, okay, well, that's a hell of a feat to build. But if you look at the, 
the the opportunity there where's the opportunity mm. you know for uh, for anyone that wants to have a go in, in australia and that's put on the tool belt and uh, yep. learn learn a trade potentially um and uh, build a team and, and get after it there is a massive abundance ahead of for some people should they want to harness that opportunity ahead I, yeah. I, we have to remember that as well that part of the reason so many people want to come here is because it is such a great place yeah you know you, you go to even places like italy and just things just don't work the post system doesn't work the medical <laughs> system doesn't work it's a beautiful place to visit if you if you've got money and you're a tourist but things don't work for the average person and so we're, we're really lucky here and i think to james's point we really just need to try and focus on on finding that opportunity rather than tearing other people down and we have to really question our biases because sometimes people have biases and they're not tested in reality at all. Like my experience with almost all immigrants that I've met in Australia, whether they be Muslims, Indians, uh, whatever, deeply grateful to be here, kind-hearted, great values. Um, and I think, you know, it's dangerous to assume that they just want to come and take from the system. Mm. You know, there's, there's bad apples in every population, including white Australians who probably arguably game the system more than than some of the immigrants coming in you know because they're like dippers used to it they understand it i don't know that's just sort of my thought it's definitely a pickle that we need to sort of confront and i think personally we've got to recognize that we often romance the past and there is some beautiful things in the past but there's also some beautiful things in the present as well as, as patrick bet david says the future looks bright i tend to agree again i think people need to adjust their expectations and what I mean by this is I went to Europe this summer, right, to celebrate my 40th. I know I look 20, but it was my 40th. <laughs> and, you know, we stayed in a couple Airbnbs, a couple hotels, and like a two-bedroom Airbnb in the middle of Rome, right, is 50 square meters. Like, it is tiny, you know. Here, a two-bedroom is still 100 square meters, you know. And that 100 square meter two-bedroom, as an example, costs a lot more to build, you know, but people need to adjust their expectations and go, you know, I'm not going to be able to afford that as an example. I'm going to have to live in or buy something a little bit smaller, you know, and I can guarantee you right now I can pull up Seek live, right? I can pull up realestate.com live and there will be rentals available and there will be jobs available, mm. right? Until the day that you open up Seek and it goes zero jobs available, and you go to REA as an example, and there's zero places available, that's what we need to avoid, right? But right now, it's very hard for me to comprehend how someone can sit there, unless they have a psychiatric you know, issue, and say, you know, and, and beg for money as an example, when there is work out there. I know lots of business people, They're friends, all looking for labor. They're all consumers, so you the know? people coming in need stuff too, right? Yeah, you know, so, you know, until the day, you know, it says, you know, zero available, zero jobs available. But that's obviously why we, you know, vote and vote governments in to hopefully make the be better decisions for the people for that not to happen. But I think just with the immigration and the 500,000 people that are going to be coming in on a yearly basis, whether that comes to fruition or not, it's it, the, our, all of our quality of life is going to change because guess what? It's going to take longer to get to the beach because there's going to be more cars on the road. It's going to, you know, uh, uh, take more time to go and book a restaurant because there's more competition and more people going there, as an example, right? So quality of life will uh, need to be, uh, sorry, quality of life isn't going to be what it is today. And all of our 
expectations, I think, need to be adjusted because it's going to change, you know, very quickly, especially if the government doesn't pick up on infrastructure. Because right now on the Gulf Coast, you know, I drive to Brisbane once in a while, right? And I, I, we went there last week to go um, spend some time in Brisbane for the day with the kids. And it took us, you know, hour and 20 minutes to Brisbane. And this was at nine o'clock. You know, I could just imagine the person that's going to be driving there every day at 6 a.m. taking an hour and a half every day. What's that going to look like in 10 years? Yeah, I mean, even for the average person as well, I mean, there's, there's certain things that we can control and there's certain things that we, we can't control. And I think uh, we need to be careful that we don't let the stories and the narratives that we're hearing in the, in the news discourage us from getting out there and having a go. Um, there's, there's, there's many, many ways to skin a cat. There's many, many ways to get into the property market. Um, and I just think, you know, sometimes we can get a little bit uh, sidetracked by the narrative and then use that as an excuse to not kind of perform at the level that, you know, we're all capable of doing. So I think that's another another point. Oh, absolutely, Mark. There's, there's never been more wealthy young people than there is today um, who uh, Australians, immigrants, all, you know, all kinds that are, even when I was coming up, you know, it's with the news cycle, there's so much more news, there's so much more distraction, there's so many different narratives being shoved down our throat. But one thing remains true. Most people are, are crowded at the bottom of the ladder, not at the excellence end. And if you strive for excellence, if you're a young person listening to this, um, I really encourage you, read Purple Cow by Seth Godin. There is very few people that are truly outstanding still who go that extra mile, who are willing to be patient, who are willing to uh, put in the work and the effort, you know, to um, really uh, make an impact and, uh, and who are willing to just do stuff for a little bit for free at the start because they everybody thinks at the start as alex Hormozzi says they think their time is valuable when they've got no track record it isn't your time isn't worth anything mm -hmm. when you don't have a track record so don't treat it like it is and go and impress and network and provide value and human nature hasn't changed if you provide genuine authentic value to somebody that's outstanding sooner or later the law of reciprocity is going to kick in uh, you know, the young guy that's editing our reels, these first reels, I get on no joke, probably 20 a day of editors around the world saying, can I edit a reel for you? Can I work for you? Mm. This kid didn't ask. He actually edited reels for me every day for a week and said, just grabbing my content, right? And just cutting it and said, this is what I can do. Please give me feedback. And then he's followed me up. He's followed me now for six months while we've been trying to get this podcast going. Every week, he's followed me up. His name's Virat, based in India. And he says, I want to work for you. I've seen your profile. I can see you're doing big things. I can see you're doing the podcast. I I'll just keep here and I'll keep checking in, sir. That kid now is editing our reels for us yeah. and we're paying him because he kept at it. And he, he understands that if I do excellence and uh, provide value, it'll come. But he was the only one that followed up that uh, and didn't ask whether he could work he did the work mm. and and uh what did you say there followed up followed up oh, yeah. yeah yeah you know that word <laughs> i think we were discussing that not too long ago yeah we were it's just yeah. he, he he persisted and so those things don't cost money it's just patience it's providing value it's just playing that little bit longer game and so you know i do know that you know if you are bright the the flip side of this is that you have so much access now to 
information, talking about Elon, you can go and watch Elon be interviewed. You can learn from a billionaire directly. Like when I was coming up, you heard about a billionaire in the BRW rich list. Once a year when they put it out, you'd read two paragraphs about them and that was it. They, they weren't on TV, they weren't on radio, there were no podcasts, nothing. Now you can just fast track. I mean, we launched this podcast, look where we've started. We've started at such a high level because we have the benefit of being able to watch and access not only seeing other people do it, but those people now releasing videos behind the scenes showing you how they did it and why they did it. We, We've saved years. We have social media now. That there's, there's millions and millions of millionaires uh, on social media totally. that you can reach out and ask a question to and basically say, hey, I'm interested in your story. I want to know how you do it. And we all know people love talking about their own story, right? So and there's platforms, like you know, like Clarity.fm and others where you can buy access by the minute. Yeah, I mean, you know? YouTube yeah. is, is the ultimate university, if used correctly. I mean, it's... Chat GPT, yeah, YouTube. You, you've got everything at your fingertips and it's all free. Yeah, so rather than worrying about property prices, um, worry about excellence. Get in the game. Yeah, and property prices, I still think for people who are excellent at what they do and are truly embracing change, it's still possible. Uh, admittedly, you might have to be more outstanding now to get there, but my suspicion is that if you're listening to this podcast, that's you. Yeah. So you're our audience. I agree. So guys, thank you for listening in. We've got one favor to ask of you. If you enjoyed our podcast today, this is our second one, right? The first one we did was introducing ourselves. Um, uh, just one favor. If you can hit the subscribe button and tell your friends, because I'll make a deal with you. If you do that, we will do everything in our power to make this show better and better and better. In the comments below, tell us what you love. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Um, if you like one of the guys and you, what they said, let them know because we're sitting here in a room on the Gold Coast <laughs> with absolutely zero feedback. James is if single. If you like James, James, James DM him instead. If, if you like James, put in the comments. Hit him up. He's single. Um, but uh, no, please, all I ask is that you hit the subscribe button and we promise that we will do everything to make this show a valuable resource for you that speaks in a language that resonates with you. But the subscription, it's free, of course, just hit the subscribe button. It just enables us to get better guests uh, and more talent onto the show that we can interview and unpack. And you're going to see some of the interviews coming up. But the more subscribers we have, the better we're going to be able to do for you. Um, so that's our commitment to you. So thank you for watching. Please share the content. Please tell your friends. And until next time, boys, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you. you, Adam. Yeah, All right. Pleasure. See you guys. Ain't nothing about this is luck. Boy, this ain't ambition. Nothing gets in our way. We on a clear mission. We making plans. We just trying to lift society. Working so hard that we growing notoriety. And we born with the drive. Yeah, it's inside of me. Eric, Mark, and James, we giving game. They inspiring. Adam clear with the vision. It's so deployable. You do what you want when you live in life. Unemployable. 